1: The big question about about Trump is very much alive, and I think Trump is really the only one where there is a compelling case that he engaged in insurrection. It's a high bar. You need to overcome First Amendment hurdles, but he is getting there.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is The Lawfare Podcast. June 13th, 2022, Roger Parloff is a senior editor at Lawfare. He has been following in a way that just about nobody else has, the litigation to keep people off ballots under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. You remember Section 3. It's the part of the 14th Amendment that says if you engaged in an insurrection, you're excluded from public office. It was the subject of a major Fourth Circuit opinion the other day. And the state of Section Three litigation is also the subject of a significant new Roger Parloff piece on Lawfare entitled, After the Cawthorn Ruling, Can Trump Be Saved from Section Three of the 14th Amendment? Roger joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk through the piece What are the major legal arguments that people involved in January 6th are using to keep themselves on the ballots? How strong are the factual cases against different gubernatorial and congressional actors? And why is Donald Trump uniquely vulnerable to a challenge on this basis? It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 13th. Roger Parloff, talks Madison Cawthorn, Donald Trump, and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. All right, so I want to start with the Fourth Circuit ruling in the Madison Cawthorn case, but before we do, let's situate the conversation a little bit. We are talking about a raft of challenges to legislators and others' presence on ballots around the country because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So for those for whom that sounds like gibberish, uh, what is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and why are there challenges to a variety of Republican officials and candidates on the basis of it?
1: Right. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment was enacted you know, after the Civil War, uh, ratified in 1868. And the idea was that if you had been involved in the rebellion, and it's written in a gnarly way, in essence, if you had already sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, and then you supported the Confederacy, you were disqualified from holding a long list of offices. So that's basically Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And, it, and it's written in a way that it doesn't just apply to the Confederacy. It also applies clearly to things that happen in the future, insurrections, rebellions, uh, giving aid or comfort to enemies of the United States. All of these subject you to a disability under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And Congress is empowered under this section to lift those disabilities if it wants, by a two-thirds vote of uh, each house of Congress. So that's Section Three. And so after the insurrection, everyone began to of January sixth, everyone began to think, well, wait a minute, does this is this an insurrection? And if so, does that mean that maybe uh, officials that were involved in this, including President Trump might be disqualified from future office under this provision.
0: All right. So Madison Cawthorn is one of the people who has faced a petition for disqualification. Let's talk about the case against him. What what did uh, the petitioners allege and how did this end up in the Fourth Circuit? Yeah, the
1: the allegations were not particularly strong, I'd say. And that's that's true of most of these cases so far. You know, the, uh, he had made uh, statements that were, he, he promulgated the the false election fraud claims and um, he, you know, supported the Stop the Steal rallies and uh, made some other inflammatory statements on the day and even afterwards. But I think that without Discovery showing more than that, it it was weak in terms of the robust protections that First Amendment provides to political speech. And that's true of most of these so far. But North Carolina had a a good procedure for challenging a candidate to say say they were disqualified for office. And so uh, uh, some voters who were backed by a nonprofit group availed themselves of that procedure, challenged him, tried to get discovery, failed, but meanwhile, he went into federal court to block the whole proceeding. And the main argument that his lawyer proposed was that this, this Amnesty Act of 1872, which I guess I should explain to you, uh, covered Cawthorn. Now, the Amnesty Act of 1872, this was four years after uh, Section 3 was ratified. It was a partial amnesty that really lifted these disabilities from thousands of Confederates that were covered by it, probably around 17,000. So it was en masse, but it didn't reach everybody. It got most of the lower officials. So his lawyer was saying that the wording of the 1870 Amnesty Act was actually broad enough that it it had prospective effect, that it reached out into the future and lifted disabilities on future insurrectionists. This was an improbable claim that many scholars had not even anticipated. But the uh, judge in uh, North Carolina, the Eastern District of North Carolina, Richard Myers, surprisingly accepted that claim,
0: and then that was appealed to the
1: Fourth Circuit.
0: So by the time the Fourth Circuit rules on this, Madison Cawthorn has already lost his primary election bid to uh, return to office. So why is the case not moot and what did the Fourth Circuit find?
1: Yeah, that is certainly an oddity about the case. He, the, he lost the primary May 17th and the 73-page ruling came down uh, on the 24th. And uh, what they said was that, well, the election hasn't been certified yet. So it's still a live question. And uh, reading between the lines, I think you might think that, gee, they found the int- questions interesting. They'd written 73 pages and they didn't want to throw it in the wastebasket. But uh, they did give that reason for, that was the reason it wasn't moot.
0: All right. So what did they find on the question of the Amnesty Act of 1872?
1: They really gave it, the back of their hand. This argument, uh, um, they uh, said, to ask such a question is nearly to answer it. The the notion that that the eighteen seventy two legislation prospectively lifted the the uh, disability uh, one hundred fifty years in the future. They they did not see the textual uh, argument for it, and there had never been any historical argument. It had always been a purportedly textual. Argument. Nobody thinks any legislator was thinking about the future in 1872. So a, a second judge had meanwhile also rejected the Amnesty Act claim. I sort of think this is uh, the end of the Amnesty Act claim. But it was obviously sort of for the Republican Party, it was a deus ex machina. Uh, you know, it would. Eliminate all of these claims. There have now been nine, and of course, all of these are sort of uh, warm-up acts in, in case Trump runs, because that's that's the big question. All of these are really uh, laying the foundation for.
0: All right, so let let let's talk that through, because because I think that there's a there's a sense in which all of these cases are petering out. But there's also a sense in which they are, as you say, a warm-up act, and each of them is establishing something that may be deployable in the context of, of a second or third Trump candidacy. So you said there have been nine of these cases. In most of them, as I understand your analysis of it, you don't think there's a case because you don't think these people have meaningfully engaged in insurrection. Yes. But that's a fact claim. That's sort of the last piece of analysis, right? Before you get to that, there are all these claims like the Amnesty Act stuff that are sort of as a matter of law. So what are the other as you say, deus ex machina, uh, legal claims that would kind of wipe things out so you don't even have to think about the question of whether the candidate in question engaged in insurrection.
1: Yeah, there are at least three others. One of them, it only applies to U.S. senators and U.S. representatives, but that's a lot of who the cases have been filed against so far. And it says that under Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, each House of Congress is the exclusive judge of the qualifications of its members. Um, That's the argument. And uh, this was first really advanced by uh, Professor Derek Muller, and he advanced it long before the insurrection, uh, January 6th. And uh, so it's a very respectable argument people disagree with it, uh, saying that Article 1, Section 4 uh, modifies, uh, you know, gives the states some uh, powers to uh, control the way that elections are run, including elections for federal officers, and that that allows them to judge the uh, qualifications of candidates. So that's been a, a lively issue. The courts have sort of been all over the map about that so far. But the important thing is it doesn't reach state candidates. And most importantly, it doesn't reach presidential candidates. So it has, it won't, basically, it won't save Trump.
0: Right. Even if the House of Representatives and the Senate have exclusive authority to decide whether to admit an elected member who may have engaged in insurrection, uh, that has nothing to do with qualifications to be the president right? Exactly. All right, so what's the second one?
1: The next one, um, it's based on an 1869 case called Griffin's case. It's basically the notion that Section 3 is not, quote, self-executing, unquote. So what happened in Griffin's case, it was before a circuit court, and the the judge was... uh, Chief Justice Salmon Chase, and maybe I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but he was acting as a circuit judge. And the the case was a habeas corpus. It was brought by a freed slave who had been convicted of a felony, a shooting with intent to kill. And he was saying, well, my conviction can't count because the judge who presided at my trial should have been disqualified under Section 3 because of his involvement in the Confederacy. And, and of course, his judge had been involved in the Confederacy. And this was not an isolated case. There were a lot of criminal defendants, you know, in this situation. And so Chase said, you know what, Section 3 isn't self-executing, meaning until Congress enacts a law explaining how to enforce it, uh, this judge was entitled to stay... In his job, and as a result, the conviction stands. And so that's the notion that Section 3 isn't uh, self executing. After Griffin's case, in fact, Congress did enact enabling legislation that explained how you could enforce it, but that was later uh, repealed. So uh, the argument today is well, there's no enabling act, uh, all of these are dead on arrival, it's not self executing. That sounds like a pretty good argument until you learn more about the context, which is that a few months before Griffin's case, the same judge, uh, Chief Justice Chase, sat on a different case involving, actually it involved Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy. And he had ruled the other way in a different context. He said it is self-execute. Historians like Gerard Malioka, who wrote about this, he, he wrote about Section 3 at length in a law review article that came out in December 2020, <laughs> so one month before the uh, January 6th, which gives it a lot of credibility. He noted that um, he didn't think Griffin's case was convincing, especially in light of the fact that the same judge had come out the other way a a few months earlier. And in addition, uh, and and he thought so for several other reasons, uh, including the fact that other sections of the 14th Amendment, like Section 1, are self-executing.
0: It seems like, though, that there's a very specific piece of evidence that Section 3 is self-executing, which is that Section 3 gives Congress the ability to remove the disability, but it doesn't say Congress needs, can impose the disability. The disability, you know, it, it describes a congressional action by two-thirds vote to remove it, but it just describes the disability as existing.
1: Right. Right. Well, uh, that's uh, a fair argument. I haven't heard anyone make it, actually. I think those that argue the other way look to the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment and say, see, uh, that gives Congress the power to enforce the 14th Amendment. And uh, so they say, well, that's how they were supposed to do it. I I think another argument that it is self-executing is that prior to Griffin's case, People were ousted under it prior to there being any Enabling Act. A lot of people were ousted uh, under Section 3 without any Enabling Act. And there are rulings, you know, by federal circuit courts, by the state Supreme Courts. We have those rulings. And Congress ousted people under it without any Enabling Act. Uh, And and, uh, I think several uh, uh, justices of the Tennessee Supreme Court were also, you know, there's a lot of history uh, that was, you know, by people that uh, were there when this was ratified that thought this was self-executing. So I don't think it's that
0: strong an argument. So what's the third deus ex machina argument?
1: Merely committing insurrection does not disqualify you from anything. You have to first take an oath and then commit insurrection. Furthermore, you have to take an oath for a certain list of offices, and then commit insurrection, and then it it applies. But even then, it only applies to another list of offices, which isn't identical to the first list. So it's a very complex thing, and it never uses the word president. It uses a couple categories that sound to me and to you probably like they would include president, like any officer of the United States, but that's the nub. So a couple professors, uh, Josh Blackman and, and S.B. Tillman, Seth Tillman, have argued that that phrase, uh, an officer of the United States, is also used in Article two, I believe, of the Constitution. And there, it does not mean president. It means people that are appointed or commissioned by the president. So they argue, well, maybe that's what this means, that uh, they chose that phrase and it doesn't include the president. Now, you know, obviously that would be a strange thing, but at the time that they were doing this, uh, you know, Lincoln was not the problem. Lincoln had not committed an insurrection. Maybe they didn't you know, conceivably, envision a situation where the president himself would lead the insurrection. So that's that's the argument. Uh, most people think it's it's a little tortured and uh, ex- exceedingly improbable. Uh, there's, no, there's no support for it in the in the legislative history, but there's no refutation of it either. One one senator, I think, had noticed when they were discussing Section Three. That, in, as far as he read it, it didn't see it didn't refer to the president. And another senator said, "Well, no. Uh, let me direct your attention." And he directed the person's attention to a phrase in there that said, "Any office under the United States." That is technically, that's actually in the second list of offices. Any office under the United States, as opposed to. Any officer of the United States, and Blackman and Tillman offer no opinion about whether that second phrase uh, might in, that might include the president, but the first phrase, which is the ones who actually took an oath, which which oaths matter, uh, they claim that that ha- that does not include the president. So the weird thing would be, what that means is okay, uh, President Trump committed an insurrection. You can you know. We could all agree on that, but because the only oath he took at the time of the insurrection was one to become president, he's not covered by it. That's the argument.
0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. So, where does this all leave us? You have the Fourth Circuit, which doesn't control around the country but does control in the Fourth Circuit saying that the Amnesty Act stuff is off-limits. You have scattered different non-controlling precedents with respect to Congress's exclusive authority to adjudicate these, and you have no authority with respect to either whether the president is covered uh, or whether it's self-executing, And yet we have a whole bunch of these cases that have been kind of decided on uh, other grounds or sometimes on these grounds around the country. So where do you think we are with these disqualification cases at this point? Uh, Let me just uh, make one
1: little footnote to what you said. One judge in three cases in in a case involving three cases, three challenges in Arizona, a superior court in Arizona did accept the self-executing argument. He said that Section 3 was not self-executing. That was one of several bases for dismissing it. And then on appeal, uh, the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed, but on narrower grounds, so not reaching. So there's a, you know... There's a tad of support in the case law, I guess, uh, for the theory that it's not self-executive. Where does it leave us? You know, it, it turns out to be very important to bring these, what sorts of provisions the state has for challenging the qualifications of a candidate. Because if you just go into court, certainly a federal court, and seek a declaratory judgment saying. I don't think so-and-so is qualified. You don't have standing. And so there might not be that many states that have these procedures. We're waiting to see, you know, maybe if Pennsylvania might. uh, We don't know if these uh, not-for-profits are planning more attacks, but they might not be able to. And then, but I do think the big question about, about Trump is very much alive. And I think Also, I think factually, Trump is really the only one where there is a compelling case that he engaged in insurrection. It's a high bar. You need to overcome First Amendment hurdles. But he is getting there.
0: But before we get to the merits of the Trump case, I want to talk about the mechanics of the Trump case. So... Now imagine it's a year and a half from now and Donald Trump rides down the escalator at Mar-a-Lago and announces that, not that there is one, but uh, announces that he's running for president again. And a whole bunch of people move to, in different states, to keep him off the ballot. You just said a whole bunch of them won't have standing. So does that mean there's no way to adjudicate it in those states, or that this is a non-starter in those states, or that there's some other means of adjudicating it in those states?
1: Uh, We have to see how clever the lawyers are. There clearly is, is a mechanism in North Carolina and in Georgia, and I assume in a lot of other states where there weren't people that uh, the nonprofits wanted to target. But I, I have not done a review of, of that, and they won't tell me what their research shows. But what I assume is, yeah, we would get a lot of these challenges through local procedures, and then it's it, given how strong the case is, it's hard to believe that at least one of those officials, you know, you have 51 jurisdictions, at least one or several would not try to keep him off the ballot. So that would quickly bring the Supreme Court into the picture, I think.
0: So you imagine that eventually, that basically the mechanism is there are a few states where there are clear procedures. The case against Trump is strong enough that petitioners might win in one. And that would actually cause the federal courts and perhaps the Supreme Court to rule in a fashion that would then control the other states.
1: I think probably even before you get to a ruling disqualifying him, the uh, Trump campaign would run into federal court and begin to invoke these deus ex machina arguments and uh, i think at that point uh it would go up to the supreme court
0: all right so let's talk about the merits of the case against trump versus the others first of all why are the cases against the other people are there any but is there anybody other than trump who is a plausible national candidate or a statewide candidate or congressional candidate who you think there is a plausible section 3 case against and what makes Trump's situation different to the extent that there uh, that he's uh, uniquely in a dangerous situation here?
1: Well, the one remaining section 3 challenge that's still alive right now is, Closer than the others to plausibility, it involves somebody that was actually convicted of a a crime relating to January 6th. He was there. Um, That's Coy Griffin. He was a county commissioner from Otero County, New Mexico. But it was a misdemeanor. He did not go inside the building. He was outside the building with a bullhorn. And uh, he was actually acquitted of a second misdemeanor uh, for disorderly conduct. The judge, Trevor McFadden, found that uh, when he led the crowd in prayer using the bullhorn, he may have been trying to calm them down rather than rile them up. And so he acquitted on a disorderly conduct charge. And that raised, you know, can you really be guilty of insurrection if you were acquitted on disorderly conduct?
0: It was a very orderly insurrection.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's a tough one. But I think with Trump, you know, obviously, we know more about him. Uh, Simply, I mean, the January 6th committee has been investigating. We've got the Department of Justice has charged more than 820 people. And we've learned a lot about, through their cases, a bit about the impact that Trump was having on them. And we have a couple important uh, district court rul- rulings, federal district court rulings that are pretty powerful. One of those was Judge Amit Mehta in a civil case, several civil cases, where police officers and uh, some congressmen have sued Trump under the Ku Klux Klan Act for, in essence, forcibly trying to obstruct the uh, Certification of the election. So, very close to inciting uh, the riot and uh, an insurrection. And he allowed the the case to go forward against a motion to dismiss. He allowed those cases to go forward. And the key question was whether he could overcome the uh, very steep First Amendment protections that uh, exist for political speech uh, under. Brandenburg versus Ohio. And he found that under the really unique situations here uh, that uh, the cases could proceed. There was a strong case that he had gone over the line and had incited the insurrection. Um, had incited, I don't know if he used the word insurrection, but he had incited the riot. And he does a very close analysis of uh, you know, the three months leading up to January 6th, and also uh, sort of a line-by-line exegesis of the 75-minute speech at the Ellipse. And uh, it's, uh, in my humble opinion, pretty convincing. So that is one thing. And of course, you could say, well, that's just a motion to dismiss. He he He's just accepting the allegations as true. That's not a, based on evidence, which is technically true. But all of the ev- all of the allegations he was discussing virtually all of them uh, are undisputed uh, you know the text of all those tweets and speeches and and uh, video appearances is uncontestable and uh, then what happened afterwards is uncontestable we have it on terabytes of video
0: but what if a subsequent appellate court say either the DC circuit or the supreme court says, as a matter of law, Judge Mehta is wrong, and this is under Brandenburg protected speech. And therefore, you know, it may have caused uh, the insurrection, but it's not actionable. Does that affect whether he has engaged in insurrection for 14th Amendment purposes?
1: Well, I think it does. I I, I mean, I don't think anyone knows that for sure. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, this was written before, you know, Section 3 and the 14th Amendment were written before we interpreted the First Amendment the way we do. I can't imagine a contemporary court saying this is an exception to the First Amendment. Uh, I think they would try to harmonize them.
0: So at this stage, your bottom line essentially, is that no sitting member of Congress or likely congressional candidate has a serious Section 3 problem, but Donald Trump still potentially does. Is that fair?
1: That's right. And, and the reason I say that is that we know, know right now so little, we know uniquely little about what the representatives and senators did. The, the pro-Trump uh, representatives and senators, because for the most part, uh, the January 6th committee has been very delicate in not sending out subpoenas to them. Uh, they have sent, I think, five, and those four have been, and at least four have been rebuffed. Um, so we know very little about their role. We, you know, we've gotten a few emails through Meadows, and then so far, the vote challengers have failed to obtain discovery in the state-level proceedings that allow for vote challenges. Those proceedings do uh, provide for discovery um, in theory, but those proceedings are really built for qualifications. The, the, The sorts of qualifications that are ordinarily being contested are like, are you a citizen? Are you a resident of the state? Are you 21? You know, these are relatively easy things to establish or not, you know, or disprove. And in fact, usually the the burden is on the candidate to show these things. So the, the administrative law judges or whoever the official is that decides is not used to granting extravagant, you know, subpoenas and document production. And also, all of this stuff is on an incredibly compressed timeline. It's usually the candidate registers and, you know, six weeks later, there's the primary. So you've got to decide this very quickly. And a, a Section 3 challenge is, you know, an allegation that you engaged in insurrection. That's just a huge litigation. And so we really just can't, don't seem to be able to learn enough about these senators and representatives. Now, if something happens, uh, you know, things could change. And I, I guess just this morning, you know, for instance, a Republican gubernatorial candidate was arrested for a January 6th involvement. I think it's a misdemeanor so far, Ryan Kelly. But, you know, things could change. But no, uh, uh, so far with the First Amendment and how little discovery we have, I I haven't seen a convincing Section 3 case for them.
0: So what are we looking for in this area going forward? Is it, are we just going to sort of sit back and wait until either the factual landscape changes with respect to any 2022 gubernatorial uh, or congressional candidate, or are we going to wait until Donald Trump files uh, in one of the relevant states and a challenge emerges?
1: There could be more challenges. Uh, the, the The group that has done the most challenging is uh, called Free Speech for People, and uh, they've declined comment on whether they plan additional challenges they they've already sent letters to every secretary of state in the country putting them on notice that they regard trump as disqualified they did send a letter relating to doug mastriano who's now running for governor in pennsylvania but i don't know what pennsylvania's procedures are and if if they're going to have a procedure that enables them to challenge him so uh we we could see a few more and and of course the, the, the we might get a result in the coy griffin case in new mexico but uh yeah i think we're we're waiting and like you say it will matter if we learn more about what happens in the uh ku klux klan cases that uh, judge mado was ruling on if if there is a reversal on appeal
0: we are going to leave it there in the meantime Roger Parloff, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for
0: having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the ever-patient Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks. I know I nag you about this every now and then, but I I really mean it this time. You should promote the Lawfare Podcast. Tweet about it. Share us on Facebook. Make TikTok videos about the Lawfare Podcast. There aren't enough TikTok videos about the Lawfare Podcast. And for God's sake, leave a rating or review wherever you found it. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan.